Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, folks. Thanks for tuning in to AOA on this Tuesday, March 15th. There's a lot happening today. Earlier today, it was announced that the producer price index, or excuse me, the producer prices has risen 10% in this country. That's a sign that the Fed is likely going to increase interest rates tomorrow. We're going to talk to Darren Newsom from Newsom Analysis in segment two about just what this is doing to the stock market. And then in segment three, we're going to get caught up from our friend John Holzman, geopolitical strategist based in Europe. We've got several European prime ministers heading to Kiev today. John's going to give us an update on the volatile situation there between Russia and Ukraine. In addition, we're going to look over to China. Lockdowns have been spreading in that country as they try to get a handle on COVID and maintain their COVID zero policy. What's that going to mean for supply lines as we get close to planting season here in this country? Finally, at the end of the show, Steve Pittstick of the Illinois Soybean Association is going to join us. Five state soy organizations got together to fund some research looking at the the potential path forward for soybeans. Steve's going to share with us some of that research. Before we get to all of that, however, we are going to talk grains exports, but not grains on ships. We're going to talk grains in the belly of animals and how that's moving off our shores. Dean Meyer, the chair-elect for the U.S. Meat Export Federation, he's a corn, bean, and cattle farmer from, from northern Iowa, joins me today. Dean, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Good morning, Mike. It's good to be with you. Dean, last week you were down at Commodity Classic with several of the folks from the USMEF talking to producers. As you were sharing the importance of getting meat sold to our overseas partners, what were some of the main points that came up in conversation? Yeah, it's it's a significant part of exporting uh, grains, and that's, that's why we're there, since livestock's the number one consumer of corn. Uh, we need to be there and the way it relates back to corn and soybean farmers is um, 2021 it equated to uh, 66 cents per bushel the red meat export value back to corn and in soybeans a dollar 72 was attributed to uh, red meat exports for every bushel of soybeans so it's it's significant it is significant. And Dean, when we talk about these statistics quite a bit, a lot of times 66 cents a bushel, well, geez, even on $6 corn, that's over 10%. These are big moves. How is it that USMEF calculates this? You guys are looking at the grains fed to livestock and then the percentage of that livestock that moves overseas. Is that how you calculate these figures? Yes, exactly. And and actually, uh, we uh, utilize J Dave Jude from World Prospectus. He does a lot of the economic research. And uh, USMBF actually has the data down to each cut. I mean, what what percentage of each cut moves in the dollar value back to corn and soybeans? You know, for example, the hams, you know, the, the, the skirt, um, short ribs and the beef. And um, it's 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 just amazing how each cut, and that's why it's so important to utilize all cuts and find markets for each one of these individual cut cuts. So they're utilized to the maximum and maximum dollars. And, and then on top of that, it's the variety meats, you know, that add value. Yeah, that's the key. There's a lot of, of products of animal production, protein production that, that we produce in this country that Americans just aren't so fond of eating. I, th I think of liver myself, and I'm sure all of us have our own, but those have markets overseas, Dean, and USMEF, I imagine, has been having those conversations to keep those markets open. Have you been a part of any of those? Yes, uh, we, we've been at the table. I mean, the board is always I mean that's really what we said on the board doing deciding where to put those dollars is as a lot of people realize that it's checkoff dollars leveraged with government funds that that move me that that we use to uh to move these markets and and to find these markets and and to put staff in these countries where these opportunities are and uh yeah to answer your question we we, uh, we set up front making those decisions 
Indeed you do. Dean, as you think about where the opportunities lie in the future, what countries come to mind? What have you been talking about at USMEF as real opportunities for American protein going forward? You know, it still goes back to uh, where we have free trade agreements with. Um, it's proven that trade agreements work. And, uh, you know, the old faithful, the, the Japans, the uh, Koreas, and uh, now China, Hong Kong, you know, for beef is just amazing. I, you know, we last month we just got the report from January statistics, and uh, we, we have another record, another billion-dollar month for beef exports. And leading those again is South Korea, South Korea, Japan, Hong Kong, Taiwan. But then it's also in the Caribbean and Central America. We can't, re, you know, forget our Western markets because, you know, they're the closest. There's, you don't have the port congestion to get them there. And that's, that's the beautiful thing about it. It's, a, it's broad-based growth. And um, for pork, you know, we got the, the agreement with India to market pork there. Uh, it's going to be a you know slow-moving market because of the dynamics and in, in the leadership and getting getting it in there. But we've got people on the ground. We've got product there. We're de demonstrating it. I mean, USMEF has proved if we can get access, re U.S. red meat is is an easy sell. I mean, once people get moving to the middle class, get money in their pocket, they want protein and they want good protein, and we get the you know reliable quality source to supply them with. Yeah, it is incredible. And Dean, you mentioned that first order of business is getting those folks in country to show them, really to teach them about U.S. proteins. I know we got into China 20 years ago and that market has developed. As you look at India, you mentioned it might be a slow rollout, but the opportunity there is they search for protein. That's got to be something that the team at MEF is excited about. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we we got the door cracked here, um, and we already have people on the ground there. We we flew product over there to start demonstrating it. I mean, it's it's another potential China opportunity, and uh, we know both countries started slow, and look where we are today with them. I mean, it, it's exciting, and um, we're we're up for the challenge. Well, that's good to hear. And Dean, we're not just adding dollars to the value of corn and soybeans when we're shipping that meat overseas. We're also adding value directly to that beef and that pork cut. As you think of the importance for beef, how much do you know the dollar figure of how much value the export market adds to the uh, the beef market? Yes, that's an excellent point. I mean, I, I think of it every time I load out cattle or we load out hogs on our operation. Last year, we had a record average cattle the red meat exports that added to every carcass of cattle was $406 and hogs it was $62. And, and what's, what it, what's even more encouraging is January, I just mentioned, had another huge month on, on beef. We broke $500 per carcass on export value of beef. Um, you think about that. I, I mean, if we didn't have exports, where would we be? And that's why it's, you know, our future, the growing middle class is outside this country. And uh, 95, 96% of the population is outside this country. We've got huge potential there. We certainly do. Dean, 500 bucks ahead coming from the export market in January. Thank you so much for coming on and keep fighting the good fight to get U.S. meat to our export partners. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate visiting with you. And folks, stick around. When we return, Darren Newsom of Newsom Analysis will join us and we'll take a look at the equity markets here on AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Oh, nice engine. Supercharged? Yep. High porosity and aggregates? Yep. Porous medium for gas exchange? Uh-huh. Microbial catalytic potential and repository for carbon and nitrogen? Check, check, and check. Oh man, that is good under the hood. And to think I used to be impressed with hammies. So, when was the last time you looked under the hood at your farm's production engine? At your soil? Is it as healthy and productive as it can be? Stop by your local USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out and unlock the secrets in your soil. 
This message brought to you by NRCS and this radio station. Every Tuesday, we'll be sitting around the table, sponsored by CHS. Join us and learn how CHS creates the vital connections that empower agriculture, helping farmers and ranchers like you succeed. We'll hear from different voices from throughout the cooperative system, sharing stories about how good things happen when people work together. Join us around the table every Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, Farm Radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma. Not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. You know, we have been watching the markets closely on this show because as this uncertainty around the world continues, one of the main places American farmers are seeing it impact us is in the commodity markets. We're also seeing it impact the equity markets. Inflation data continues to come out. There is a lot happening in the world of global finance. We are going to talk about some of that with our guest next, Darren Newsom of Newsom Analysis. Darren, let's start with the grains. We're down a little bit, just consolidating here at these elevated levels? Yeah, Mike, um, it's interesting. You know, I think we can go back to, and it doesn't have to do with investments. Uh, we can go back to last Friday's CFTC Commitment to Traders Report, and I look at legacy futures only. It's the easiest one to look at. It makes the most sense. Looking at just futures positions, and we saw in the corn market, and on the non-commercial side, under the non-commercial classification, their short position of 60,000, roughly 60,300 contracts was the smallest short position going back through June 2006. This to me was significant because it means the market was way overloaded on the long side. It wasn't a record large net long or long future position, but the fact there was just so few short positions and a building long position, we're seeing some of that money come out. Now, we're not going to get overly excited. Trade volume is down. Open interest is leaking a little bit lower. But we are seeing some investment money just move out short term out of the corn market, soybeans, and some of the others. Uh, to me, it's not a long-term situation because long-term we still have bullish fundamentals. We have inverted forward curves uh, basically everywhere you look in the grain and oilseed sector. So it's still, it's still viewed as a good investment long-term. It's just short-term market got out of balance. Uh, well, Darren, that movement of investment dollars here for the past six weeks, this managed money flow has really been moving prices quite a bit. And this money is, is coming out of other investments if it's moving into commodities or, of course, it's moving out of commodities. It's going elsewhere. You just wrote an interesting piece for Bar Chart looking at the equity markets. Darren, where do you see us headed? Your, your headline was recess or recession for equities. Which one did you, did you lean towards? 
I'm probably leaning more towards recession. Uh, I, and this goes back to what, you know, you, you know me, Mike, I'm, I'm, I, I like to look at charts. I like to look at charts of all time frames. But if I go to the long-term monthly chart for the S&P 500, at the end of January, we saw a key bearish reversal. And what this means is we took out the December high, took out the December low, and closed lower for the month. So this was, to me, this was a key bearish reversal, indicating the long-term trend has gone, has turned down. So with that in mind, you know, then if we just want to apply Dow theory and look at monthly closes only, then we could jump ahead to February, where we posted a new four-month low monthly close. And that's another bearish momentum indicator. So to me, long-term trend is now down. That means we're probably moving beyond just a recess here where we just take a, a little break, you know, money shifts around a little bit, and we're looking more at a recession. Federal Reserve is going to try to wrap its hands and try to get control of inflation. They're going to start raising interest rates. We know that, possibly as early as Wednesday. So all of these things are going to come into play. I think the market, I think stock markets in general have room to move down. They've had an incredible run since 2008, 2009, and it's just time for a downtrend. And, and so to me, I think we would be looking more towards the recession side. Oh, boy. All right, Darren. Well, adding to that conversation this morning, Labor Department reported producer prices up 10% year over year. When you hear those kind of numbers and you're looking out to the Fed raising interest rates, I hear a lot of people talking about the specter of stagflation. Darren, is that a concern you've got? Stagflation, uh, possibly in time. It's going to take some time, uh, and, I, and I guess I'm not an economist, so I'm not 100% sure of what stagflation means. Do I think that we could see continued inflation enough to start weighing on the overall economy? Yes, looking at the economic indicators that I follow, uh, the cutout market, the beef cutout market certainly has been weakening. We'll, we'll see how it does here as we head into a more bullish seasonal time frame. But that certainly looks to me, it certainly has been indicating to me the economy should be slowing down. And if that's because of inflation or because of a lot of economic uh, factors that are coming into play at this point, then maybe, yes, we are looking at a period of stagflation over the coming months. All right, Darren, as this money is moving around, you mentioned we're seeing very small short positions there in the commodities. We're seeing a downtrend develop in the equities. What are investors doing with this cash? There have been very strong profits made for a lot of folks over the past year in the finance sector. Are, are they just stockpiling it, sitting on it? What do you think? They may, be, they may be sitting on some of it now. To me, they're still holding large positions in commodities. Uh, and, and again, we can go sector by sector and almost every one of them, from energies to metals to, to grains and oil seeds, the only one with bearish fundamentals is the livestock. But almost everywhere else, they're probably still sitting on some sizable uh, investment positions, some long-term investment positions. And as we see these markets break, we've seen crude oil break down, we've seen corn, soybeans, and wheats uh, come under pressure. You know, it's possible that we start to see some of that money moving back in on the idea that not just U.S. equity markets, but global equity markets could be trending lower here. So they may be moving some of the money to the sidelines. I don't think they're going to go into cash. That doesn't make much sense right now. Uh, but if they're looking at doing something, and if they're looking for markets and market sectors with long-term bullish fundamentals, commodities are still the way to go. You just have to pick and choose where they are, and you have to watch seasonal patterns. Well, that's true. And Darren, watching seasonal patterns as we get close to summer, of course, the driving season's about to restart. When we're talking commodities, boy, oil is the granddaddy of them all. Globally, oil's down substantially today. Are we just seeing, again, that consolidation as folks assess the uh, the global climate? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of headlines floating out there right now in the, in the energy market. And again, we, we saw this market get way overloaded. Uh, it was incredibly bullish. And so we saw a lot of non-commercial money coming in. We saw the commercial traders panicking. So we saw the, the backwardation or the inverse and the future spreads and the forward curve just explode. All of that seems to be crumbling right now. Am I willing to say the top is in the crude oil market? No. But I would be very careful with crude oil. I would be more comfortable with things like corn and soybeans, not necessarily wheat because uh, maybe new crop wheat. But as we look ahead, 
you know, we haven't even started to deal with weather issues yet here in the United States as far as new crop goes. Uh, you know, we haven't even gotten into planting season yet for the spring crops, and the, and the winter wheat crops are, are probably in pretty terrible shape given that it hasn't rained or snowed all winter long. So I think the weather issues are going to start to come into play, and we have to remember these markets are weather derivatives at heart. And so, you know, I'm not the only one that sees that. The investors will likely see it. I think there's still a long-term opportunity here. Darren, given that the weather is so crucial to commodity market pricing and the, the challenges we've seen down in Brazil, have you been watching that second safrina crop down there? And do you have any expectations on, on how Brazil might fare? I have no expectations. I know they're still dealing with, you know, the, the leftover ramifications of the drought that they had, that they suffered through uh, for their summer. Uh, but what matters to me is what's the market's view? I mean, we have, let me pull this up here real quick. If we, we have, you know, if we're looking at just the Beast March future spread, uh, you know, which would be the new crop market here, uh, the Beast March spread is showing an inverse of what a half cent right now. Uh, I'm reading there right. Uh, you know, so we've got an inverted forward curve for our new crop. That means we're going to be tight supplies. The May July spread, which would account some for some of what that uh, second crop in Brazil would be, that's inverted by 32 and a half cents. The July September uh, is sitting out there with an inverse of 18 and a quarter cents. So, I mean, we've got huge inverses in these markets. That tells me. The commercial side is concerned about what the Safrina crop might be. I have no opinion. I'm just reading what the market has to say, and the market's concerned about what production could be. Darren, this morning or yesterday, it was announced that Argentina is going to suspend exports of soy products. Meals down today. Is this an opportunity for folks to secure meal, or was the market already pricing a pretty big decline out of Argentina this year? You know, I think they've been declined. I think they've. I think the market has been pricing in a decrease in, in uh, Argentine production and exports for quite some time. But still, you know, the long-term picture. This this has to be a bullish you know nugget for the soybean meal market. So I would assume the commercial side is looking at this and saying, hey, this is going to give us an opportunity if we continue to see some pressure uh, in this oil seed sector. I think there's going to be an opportunity to get some longer-term coverage in place uh, as we head into the spring and summer here in the U.S. All right. Well, Darren, there is always enough stuff to keep an eye on. Folks, if you want to get Darren's writings, he writes at DarrenNewsome.com. And Darren, thanks for joining us. We always appreciate your insights. Thanks so much for having me on, Mike. And folks, stick around when we return. John Holzman, geopolitical strategist in Europe, will join us with an update on what's happening between Russia and Ukraine. And we're also going to take a look at what's developing in China. Stay with us on AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Each and every day, DTN and Progressive Farmer editors are posting unique, original content to their website at DTNPF.com, bringing you the latest news and information you need for your day-to-day -day business decisions. Their award-winning newsroom covers markets, news, and weather, while also providing insights on crops, cattle, equipment technology, and more. You'll find innovative topics like, would you plant soybeans in December? Experiments look at the possibility of boosting yields with early planting. Want to save time? Learn how through autonomous machinery systems. Will there be a surge in feed prices in 2021? And what's today's weather forecast for my farm? The editors of DTN and Progressive Farmer are committed to delivering the essential intelligence farmers need every day to help your farm business be more efficient and profitable. Visit DTNPF.com today. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, as we take a look here at the market trade on this Tuesday, we see that wheat futures are pushing higher with Chicago and Kansas City wheat leading us to the upside with corn and soybeans under pressure, soybeans especially down double digits here working through this Tuesday morning as the Wild West continues in the markets. Traders balancing the war in Ukraine with today's start of the Federal Reserve meeting, higher inflation numbers and conflicted economic data. 
Now we see crude oil prices there about 6% lower, trading at their lowest level since February 25th as COVID increases shutdowns in China. As we continue to watch this situation very closely, the bearish demand implications of that as wheat was bucking that bearish trend here as we work through our morning with uh, reports that and ideas that Russian wheat exports have been banned through June 30th. So that's something we're watching very, very closely. Of course, uh, just keeping an eye on this market overall with so many different factors playing in and still a lot of bullish momentum to the upside, but possibly maybe finding some ranges here in grains to kind of settle us out just a little bit. Cattle trade starting higher with hogs mixed on the session so far. Right now, May corn down two and a half, seven forty-five at three quarters. December corn down seven to three quarters, six forty-four three quarters. May beans twenty-one lower, sixteen forty-nine and a half. November down eighteen at a quarter, fourteen sixty-two at three quarters. May bean meal down two eighty a ton, four eighty-one fifty. May bean oil down one hundred eleven point seventy-two eighty-four. May Chicago wheat up twenty-nine and a quarter, eleven twenty-five and a half. May Kansas City wheat up twenty-seven and a half, eleven twenty-seven and a half. May spring wheat up ten and a half, ten eighty and three quarters. April live cattle up fifty, one forty eighty-two. March feeder cattle up thirty at one fifty-six twenty-five. April hogs up ten, one oh two thirty. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and the feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve together, we can make a difference bite by bite. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Hello, folks. Welcome back to AOA. Mike Pearson here. We are excited. We'll be speaking with John Holtzman here in just a moment. He's getting set up. But before we do, boy, goodness, there is news coming out of China. They are looking to cut reliance on their coal imports and push their mining of coal up about 300 million tons. So there could be some greenhouse gas emissions coming more out of China, all driven by this move higher in energy prices. Of course, that is impacting so many aspects of our world. And a lot of these have been driven by the conflict that has developed between Russia and Ukraine. One man who has been following this very, very closely every day is John Holzman. John's been on the show before. He's a geopolitical risk consultant based in Milan, Italy. John, thanks for talking to us today. Mike, it's my great pleasure. Let's talk. We've got three prime ministers heading to Kiev right now. John, what, if anything, do you expect them to be able to accomplish? Nothing. I mean, it's a solidarity move, but the Russian agenda has stalled. It's clear now the Russian military plans called for taking Kiev in two days and taking Ukraine in two weeks. Obviously, they tremendously miscalculated. And the longer that things go on and the better that Zelensky does in his Churchill impersonation, the more hard the Ukrainians have and the more cornered the Russians are. And does in you're in Europe, obviously, so you're around this a lot more than we are here in this country. The the feeling of unity that we see represented on our media, Ukrainians coming together to fight off the Russians. Is that, in your opinion, an accurate portrayal of what's happening in Ukraine? Yes, it is. Putin's made four geostrategic calculations that have proven wrong in a week and more has changed in two weeks that has changed in 20 years. I hate to quote Lenin, but he said that for decades, nothing happens, and then in a few weeks, decades happen. And that's what's happening right now. NATO has been reaffirmed. No one is arguing the purpose of NATO anymore, which I've been fighting a rear guard action about 
for 20 years. Everyone understands now that life insurance in Europe is important. Two, the Ukrainians have proven their nationality. Rather than being divided and discouraged, uh, Zelensky did not take the ride offered him by the United States. He took ammunition instead. He has an approval rating above 90%. Both East Ukraine, which has been Russian-speaking, and West Ukraine, which is Ukrainian-speaking, have united around him. And that's a huge change. Three, Germany has awoken from its very long strategic nap and is agreeing now to spend 2% of GDP on its military. Along with France, that will leave the Europeans actually militarily capable for the first time since the 1950s. And four, at the largest level, you see a cold war between democracies and autocracies forming. On the autocracy side, you see Russia as Robin to China's Batman, the junior partner. But on the other side, the dominant democratic force of India, Japan, the Anglosphere, English-speaking countries, the United States, and the EU. And all that has happened in the course of two weeks. And John, as you look out, that Cold War you highlighted there, number four, between democracy and autocracy with the world, with the world between Russia and China, where do you see this relationship going? Is China going to be stepping in and buying these Russian assets in a, in a big way? I think they will ultimately. They don't want to. This was not a war of their choice. They wanted a very quiet year not to scare the horses because in November, Xi Jinping is going to be made leader of China for the third time, which is unprecedented, in essence, leader for life. And he wanted absolutely nothing to go wrong this year. And yet history has a way of intruding. The ties between Russia and China are primarily personal between Xi and Putin. So he is going to, in the end, do more, spend more, and be more with the Russians. Now, the good news for them is that they get Russia falling off the tree. But the bad news is they lose Europe. And if I had to pick between Russia and Europe, I take Europe every day, as would China. So they know this outcome has awakened the West, which is their greatest fear in many ways. John, as we're thinking about China, they are still pursuing their COVID zero policy. It was announced here in the past several days that the port of Shenzhen is seeing some lockdowns. They've locked down, and I forget the name, a major 9 million person city in the northeastern part of the country. Where do you anticipate China's economy going from here? Well, I mean, their numbers have always been bogus. As we said before, you don't grow at 6% a year in a flat line. Their numbers should always be taken with the greatest of suspicion. But they're growing at something like 4%. But it's not much greater than American growth. And this is a great problem for them. The zero COVID strategy is a catastrophe. Only an authoritarian state would think they can outlaw a pandemic. Far better to look at conditions on the ground, be flexible as democracies are for all our many problems, than to say there'll be no COVID. And now they're having a backlash to this effort to somehow eradicate a natural disease. They certainly are. John, these lockdowns then, China, from your indication, going to stick to this policy? Could we see additional lockdowns in the short term? Yes, we can. And we'll also see them quietly doing more with the Russians. They don't want this to get around. And so they'll pursue the policy. They are, on one hand, at the official level, very tepid criticism of the West, but by their by their standards, very thin rule indeed. But privately, I think you're going to see them give drones, give money, give trading access to the Russians because the rest of the world has cut the Russians at the knees. Rather than having 600 billion in reserves, which is what the highly competent Russian macroeconomic team has done, given the fact the West has frozen Russian assets abroad, right, the Russian bank account is 300 billion. That's only a couple of years fighting and then they run out of money. And there's a huge question as to whether they can subdue a country as vast as Ukraine in 18 to 24 months. I would bet against it. Well, and John, a few days ago, I believe, a Russian missile shot into Ukraine, landed near the Polish border, still in Ukraine, hit an air base. With everything that's happening, with the reaffirmation of NATO, if an errant missile were to land in Poland, John, that would be a back black swan. What? How would the world respond? Would it be an act of war against NATO? It would be, and I hope that Biden would have the good sense not to take the bait, because if things continue as they are, the Russians are playing a losing hand. They have to try to expand the war, meaning they either need Chinese help or somehow to make the, the situation different, because at the moment, the blitzkrieg, they thought they could take Ukraine in two days and the country in two weeks, and that hasn't happened. So now they have to win ugly fighting city by city, 
be with barbarity, with brutality, which will take a great deal of time and a great number of casualties, and they'll never pacify the Western countryside, which can be bankrolled by the EU for a guerrilla war and armed by the United States. They need to change the strategic direction. And my fear is that they try to do so by luring us into something larger. We have to hold our nerve as Jack Kennedy did. Oh, boy, it could be hairy. As this looks out, you mentioned 18 to 24 months at least in protracted conflict. Realistically, John, on the ground in Ukraine, we continue to hear stories of refugees fleeing. How many more folks do you anticipate to, to leave the Ukraine and move to Europe or, or other countries in the West? Well, I think more. There's already been a confirmed 2.5 million refugees just in the last few weeks. I think if you double that, you'll be getting somewhere near that. Now, remember, after World War II, there were 20 to 30 million refugees that were ably settled by the United States Army. Uh, I was just in London talking to their government and talking to clients, and the guy I was talking to who works for a major bank was raising millions of dollars for refugees and struck a deal for an Oxford Don friend of mine to take in four while I was sitting at dinner. So that Western Europe is really mobilized to help, and I think think that can be managed. My fear is the point you make about the Russians knowing they're playing a losing hand, trying to widen the conflict to change the trajectory, which is actually very grim for them and which makes them very dangerous. Yeah, it is. If if a war were to start, if NATO were to be brought in or perhaps just Poland, would it be allowed to remain a, a regional conflict? Or if a missile lands on NATO soil, John, is the obligation that all parties respond militarily? It is not directly an obligation. It is a political decision, and that's clear in Article 5 of the Treaty of Washington, which founded NATO in 1949. Biden would have to call an emergency meeting of NATO, and I hope that cooler heads would prevail, because one of the rules that Sun Tzu, ironically a Chinese theoretician, made clear, don't do what your enemy wants you to do. At the moment, we have winning cards. I want Putin to drown on this. I don't want to change the trajectory and give him an excuse to rally Russian patriotism. So Biden would have a chance to talk to the Poles, to talk to the West Europeans about what to do. It would not be an automatic Cassus Belli, but there would be emergency meetings at the highest level. Okay, John, and if those meetings were to take place, if we were to see this spread, I've got to imagine this would be troops moving into Europe. If, if there were a NATO pushback, it would be an aggressive one. It would be, and already there's no doubt that what needs to happen is that NATO troops need to move forward to the border, uh, between Romania, Bulgaria, the Baltic states, I am absolutely for that. The point is the NATO line is sacrosanct, as President Biden has said. The dividing line is there. If anyone so much as spits on NATO territory, we have to be ready for a robust response because NATO is the most famous and useful military alliance in history. It's the gold card for everything. And the reality is we would have to defend that territory, so we have to be very, very careful about that line. And I think American troops moving to the east and setting up a base in Eastern Europe is a very good decision, which both Republicans and Democrats favor at the moment. All right, so we're putting some troops on the ground in NATO countries to defend Russia, or excuse me, to, to protect against Russian aggression. John, are there any other things we can be doing to put Russia off this attack, or have we exhausted most of our non-military options? We, we really have, but we need to talk to the Chinese who are not thrilled about what's going on. This doesn't suit them to gain Russia for Europe and say, instead of ratcheting this up, let's ratchet this down, because it's in both our interests that this thing doesn't get out of hand. And so privately, quietly, I would hope that we're talking to the Chinese at the highest level, because they have leverage with the Russians, not us. All right. Hopefully somebody is on the phone to China making that call. Listeners, if you want to get more of John's thoughts, you can go to johnholzman.substack.com for his newsletter. John, we always appreciate your insight. Thanks for joining us today. Great pleasure talking to you, Mike. And folks, stick around when we return. Steve Pitstick, the Illinois Soybean Growers, will be with us to talk about what they've been researching for the future of soy. Thanks for listening to AOA. We'll be right back. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. 
Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. This is Around the Table, where we discuss the benefits of cooperative ownership. Joining us this week is Cash Yant. He's an animal nutrition sales manager with CHS, and we're going to talk about how to manage a successful winter calving season, minerals and supplements. What's the best mix as you're thinking of approaching calving season? Really what we got to focus about is copper, zinc, and manganese. Those are the three biggest ones that drive every mineral talk that we have in the country, and really it's the ratio of those. When it comes to delivering that mineral, though, things to, to weigh is, is labor, or if we're looking for a way to get forage volume, feed volume, and trace minerals into the diet. There's a lot of different ways you can deliver mineral, be it loose, be it in a, in a cake type product or, or in a mineral tub itself, and really just marrying it up to you know where the shortcomings are on your operation in the economic environment that we ask these producers to operate in every day. Those challenges can, can be pretty big. So don't pay for something you don't need and make something do a little, little extra work for you. Now, cash post calving, what should ranchers keep in mind for their herd health? Trace minerals play a big part on retaining a pregnancy. The cow-calf industry does a great job of getting cows bred, but we do a very poor job of keeping them pregnant. Trace minerals, if we have a deficiency in the diet, the mature cow will actually retain a pregnancy, become pregnant. And then at about day 7 to 11 of that first stages of the pregnancy, she will slough that calf. And if we have enough trace minerals, zinc and manganese play a big role in those, uh, she will hold that pregnancy. And where that really pays off for us is at the weaning period. Those first cycle calves, those ones born in the first 21 days of the calving cycle, on average are about 50 pounds heavier than their pen mates that are born later in the period. So really focusing on making sure we're getting intake of that mineral and the source of those minerals really pay off as we get later on in the production cycle. Thanks for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. DTN and Progressive Farmer bring producers the best content in agriculture. Each day, our editors post unique content to our website, bringing you the latest news and information you need for your day-to-day business decisions. DTN and Progressive Farmer provide insights throughout the year to questions like, what is the outlook for corn yields in 2021? Will feed prices surge? What about land prices? And what's today's weather forecast for my farm? For more intelligence like this, visit DTNPF.com. As a truck driver, I've learned how important road safety is. I know that large trucks need more time and room to stop. That's why I always hang back and follow other vehicles at a safe distance. Everyone can help keep our roads safe. Next time you're driving, try to remember to always give trucks extra space when you merge in front of them. Let's all plan to share the road safely. Learn how at www.sharetheroadsafely.gov.
Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA. Mike Pearson here, and we thank you for joining us today. We are going to be speaking next with Steve Pitstick. Steve is a an Illinois soybean farmer. He's on the Illinois Soybean Board, and he has been talking at Commodity Classic last week about the future of soy. Steve, thanks for joining us today. Hey, Mike. Good morning. Uh, good to talk to you again. You bet. Let's talk a little bit about the future of soy. Soybean groups from five different states got together, Steve, to take a look at where this industry is headed. Tell us who were the groups that got together to, to fund this research. Yes, the five checkoff boards from Illinois, Iowa, Missouri, Indiana, and Ohio got together and worked with an outside company to try to look at the big picture of where soybean demand is going over the next uh, five to 10 years. We're in a rapidly changing environment. I think about my own career, um, 45 years of doing this, and, and the last five years have probably been more volatile than the first 40. Uh, we think about trade wars, uh, uh, COVID deal, uh, fertilizers, uh, chain, uh, supply chains, market prices, war now, it's just, it's, it's crazy what's going on. So we just try to get a handle of uh, what the trends are and where it's going. And Steve, what were the five trends that you identified? What's number one on that list? So number one on that list and on my list is the focus on fuel and, and where we're going in this uh, biofuel industry. A lot of push to be more green. Uh, a lot of that push is coming from the West Coast as we start to, uh, they start to add more renewable diesel into their mix. Uh, we're the primary feedstock for that. So that's a huge market potential. Uh, sustainable aviation fuel. Uh, six months ago, I didn't know much about it at all, but it's coming on the uh, radar really quick. And that's uh, uh, renewable fuel to supply the uh, uh, aviation industry. That's coming up fast, but then there's the traditional biodiesel that we've been using for almost 30 years now, and, and seeing more growth in that. So that's number one, uh, just rising demand from that. Absolutely. And that rising demand is driving. I was speaking to some biodiesel industry folks, and they're looking at, at refreshing that technology. You mentioned it's 30 years old, and there's some efficiencies there to be gained that it sounds like these processors are, are working towards. Steve, is that what you've been hearing? Yeah, exactly. This uh, renewable diesel thing is coming on fast because of low carbon fuel standards on the West Coast. Uh, they need us to uh, provide that. But also on the other side of that, it's uh, looking at increased meal. Uh, we're going to figure out what to do with that because of all the crushing for oil now. Oil used to be kind of a byproduct trying to find a home, and now it's it's shifting and oil is becoming the driver. So now we got to find something to do with the meal. Indeed. It's interesting to see those soy products reverse in their importance to the market. Steve, what other topics are you guys looking at? What other what are the four other topics that you're watching for the future? Yeah, so looking at that, that meal demand, we're looking at uh, you know increased protein demand from around the world, whether it be animal protein or plant-based protein. So while some of us farmers and livestock producers dislike the plant-based protein uh, from an alternative standpoint, I think there's a real play in some areas from a food, uh, uh, not food safety, but food uh, uh, shelf life uh, to get the alternative proteins. You know, I'm trying to get soy as being the, the primary driver uh, or ingredient in that uh, alternative protein mix. Uh, one of the other things we're looking at is just infrastructure and how we can be a premier uh, provider around the world. Uh, a lot of things come out of the infrastructure bill here that was passed getting some lots and dams uh, fixed on the Mississippi. That will help us be much more uh, viable and cost-effective against our competitors. Uh, another thing is just diversified revenue streams, looking at opportunities to uh, grow soybeans for enhanced value, if you will. It's always kind of been out there, but more and more uh, coming to the forefront, uh, whether it's to plenish oil, or uh, high-value meal in a non-GMO state for alternative proteins, things like that. So 
a lot of uh, changes going on. There certainly are. Stephen, as you think about that diversification, you highlighted just a few of the options. There are several ways that farms can diversify down at Commodity Classic. Did you talk to growers who were, were looking at adding perhaps small percentages of other crops to the mix to uh, bulletproof their balance sheet, at least to the extent that we're able? Yeah, everybody's looking at something. I think we as farmers are always looking for the next opportunity, whatever that is, uh, you know, whether it's a non-GMO crop or a value-added Whatever it might be, it depends on your region, depends on the weather, how things are changing. Uh, we're in a very high cost structure right now because of these inflated uh, fuel and uh, uh, fertilizer input prices. So uh, we need to step back and look at the risk and, and try to lay some of that off. We certainly do. Steve, any big changes coming with regard to acreage and your operation this next year? No. Uh, I'm here in Northern Illinois, uh, pretty much un, un, uh, unchanged. We're a 50-50 rotation, uh, just because of fertilizer prices, because of wet worm pressure, some of the traits not working as well as they used to, uh, both on the insecticide and uh, weed control side. We're living things pretty much as, as has been in the past, 50-50. And Steve, in your geography or that northern Illinois area, bids for beans have been strong recently. Or are you seeing that weaken at all? Yeah, so overall, a strong bid. Uh, you know, here in the last couple of days, it's been a little fluctuating. We've got a wild market. Who knows, you know, what's going to happen tomorrow. So uh, pretty, pretty much strong demand through the export channels where I'm at. Well, there's always something coming up. Steve, if growers, particularly Illinois soybean growers, are interested in learning more about or, or joining the Illinois bean growers, how can they go to do that? Yeah, there's a website, uh, futureofsoy.org, uh, for more information. Fantastic, folks. Check that out, futureofsoy.org. Our thanks to Steve Pitsick, Illinois farmer, board, soybean board member. Thanks for joining us today to give us an update on what you guys are looking at as the world moves forward. And folks, tune in tomorrow. We'll have more AOA. We're going to be talking finance regulations, how they could impact your relationship with the bank. And we're going to get Kenneth Scott Zuckerberg looking at the outlook. So tune in to AOA on Wednesday. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Okay, gotta be late. Gotta go, gotta go. Where'd I put... Ah, wallet. Check. And, oh, phone. Uh, check. Keys. Check. Lunch. Check. Checking for the things you need doesn't take long. But what about checking for your safety? Right now, one in every five vehicles on the road has an open safety recall. But it only takes seconds to check for open recalls on your car at checktoprotect.org. All you need is your vehicle identification number or license plate number. Your automaker may not have the right information to notify you about recalls by mail, especially if you recently moved or drive an older or used car. Checktoprotect.org is the quick, easy way to find out if your vehicle has an open safety recall and find the closest dealer who can make the repair for free. Oh, oh, laptop. Check. Before you go, take a minute. Visit Checktoprotect.org. Check to Protect is a program of the National Safety Council.